0: Good morning, church. Oh, we can do better than that. I know it's a little cold, and there's still a little sleepy crust in your eye. Some of you look a little sleepy still. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. What a joy it is to be here before you. Over the next few weeks, as Pastor Ryan is giving me the opportunity, I'm going to share with you from a book that is common to most of us and hopefully I will go along with you on this journey as we look through Jonah. My son a few weeks ago brought home a stack of papers. Every week uh, at the end of the week, the teachers kind of do like a deposit or a withdrawal from their crafts and stuff and so Caleb had a you know big stack of folders with worksheets and crafts and stuff in it and usually I kind of toss them to the Recycling the good ones I keep, um, because you can't keep all of them because you'd have like stacks and stacks of papers. But one of them caught my attention. It was a man with a big smile on his face inside of a fish with a big smile on his face. And behind the man with the smile on his face and the fish with the smile on his face was a son with a big smile on his face as well. And Caleb had kind of taken his... Crayoners, marker, and scribbled the well blue, and that was Jonah. And I just kind of looked at it for a little bit, and I'm like, well, I think we're missing a few things. We've been taught for a long time where the popular idea of Jonah is that, you know, there's a man and there's a fish, and then, well, that's it. Well, friends, I'd like to challenge you that this book is a lot more complicated than that. It is a story of horrific sin, utter rebellion, and grace that cannot be measured. And so if you would join me, we're going to begin our series in Jonah. Over the next few months or so, I think there's five sermons for this. I know there's five. And we'll sprinkle these in between Ryan's sermon on 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, please Turn to Jonah chapter 1. We'll read just verses 1 through 6. And if you could stand, please, as we read and honor the word of God. Beginning in verse 1, the text reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is uncontested. And Father God, as we begin to look at the book of Jonah, we ask that the same spirit which inspired this text open our hearts and our minds to the truth that you have within these words. Father God, I ask that you will reveal to us how this text applies to this church today. Be with me, Lord, as I speak, speak through me. Father God, hide me from behind this pulpit. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled today's sermon, Going down. We will see that Jonah was going down. And if there's one thing that I can leave you with today, friends, it is that rebellion from God leads to utter downfall, lest we surrender to God's saving grace. Rebellion from God leads to utter downfall, lest We surrender to God's saving grace. The text begins in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. We understand the word of the Lord is kind of a very standard beginning for prophetic texts. There's nothing too interesting about this. This is a classic formula for prophetic genres. As we continue reading, we see a little bit more about who the text is is giving the message to Jonah, son of Amitai. Jonah actually means dove in Hebrew. And when you think of doves, you may think of like a wedding and little white birds flying and ha, no. In Hebrew, dove actually means bird that just kind of goes sporadically in different directions, aimlessly flying around with no intent path. And then we have son of Amittai. Amitai means my faithfulness. So we begin to see the text has lots of these subtle hints to what's happening in the background. Jonah, son of a Amitai, could also be understood as one who goes in different directions, wandering around aimlessly, but still the son of my faithfulness. Friends, we'll see God show up in this text mightily in different ways. But in verse 1, we see that God is faithful. He says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Three simple sets of instructions. Arise. This word arise here has a, imperative attached to it, and it literally means get up, go. In the military, we have a term post-haste or double time, get going. It should have been a clue to Jonah that God had something really important that he wanted him to do. He says, go to Nineveh, as if Jonah didn't know where Nineveh was. It's the great city. The word great or good or good, or mighty in Hebrew Godol we'll see sprinkled throughout this entire book. The author, again, is trying to make a point subtly within the text. If you're one that loves to do inductive Bible study, you would love to take apart these four chapters of this book because they are rich and deep with meaning. Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were indeed great. They were the largest empire of that day, and they were growing. And Jonah knew this. He knew this because their empire was so large that it spread across the Middle East, right up against the Israel border. Nineveh was great not only in size, but Nineveh was great in wickedness. We have recorded all throughout the text, Second Kings, especially how bad the Assyrians were and how evil these people were and how hated they were. They were the bane of existence for all peoples at this point. So when God tells Jonah to go out to Nineveh, well, in context, friends, we have to understand what exactly God is asking Jonah to do. This was a wicked, wicked, wicked city. That represented a wicked, wicked, wicked empire that lasted over a thousand years. And God tells him why he wants him to call out, or why he wants him to go to the city, because he says, Their sin has risen before me. Nineveh's evil had reached a threshold where God was no longer interested in tolerating, and so he had sent Jonah. The first couple verses seem pretty cut and dry if we understand them in English, but without really fully appreciating the task that Jonah had before him, we would undervalue the significance and the difficulty of the task ahead of him. In 2 Kings 14, verse 26 especially, we read, He restored Israel's border from Lebo, Hemaeth, as far as the sea of Arabah, according to his word, according to the word of God, which he had spoken through his servant the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath Hefer, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for both slaves and free, there was no one to help Israel. This was because the Assyrians had pushed so far up against them, had subjugated them, had caused them to pay taxes and tribute, and they were literally draining the life out of them, probably a tactic so that they can ultimately conquer the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Friends, this is the Nineveh that Jonah was called to go out to. Another interesting insight from the text is Jonah was called to go to Nineveh as a prophet of God. Nowhere else do we see prophets go to uh, Gentile or foreign nations. We see Elijah go to Israel. We see Elisha go to Israel. Amos, Hosea, all went to Israel, to Israel because God had sent them there. We see Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all went to Judah. There is no one at this point in the prophetic understanding of scripture who had gone to a gentile nation Nahum did go back to nineveh and prophesy against them but that was only after god had really had enough of them john keller or tim keller calls jonah's mission unprecedented jonah was given a task to go to a very ugly horrible group of people who were extremely wicked and oh by the way no one else had done this before The great city and their great wickedness created a great obstacle for Jonah. In our Christ centered exposition, we see Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, was Israel's worst enemy. They were powerful and well developed. They were known for their brutal and grisly treatment to their enemies. Jonah's response to Yahweh's directive can be understood as fear, rebellion, or moral opposition to Yahweh's mercy. Jonah's not interested in participating in the redemption of this particular enemy. Jonah was good. Nah, God, I'm good. Not this group, not me, not today. It's important that we really appreciate how wicked these people were. And in order to do so, I would like to draw a comparison. About five and a half weeks ago, there was a horrific attack by Hamas, a terrorist organization on Israel. The things that this organization did, I can't share with you because they're so grisly and wretched. Imagine Hamas ten times bigger. Imagine them spreading their influence across the Middle East and then coming right up against the Israel border. And waiting for them to collapse. Friends, this was Nineveh. And God sent a prophet to this nation. We see here two key points, two attributes of God in this text. His justice and his mercy. God's justice means that he cannot stand for wrong. Because he is so righteous. God is the definition of righteousness. And anything that fits outside of his established justice is wicked. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 reads, The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without inequity, just as he is. Genesis chapter 18 verse 25 reads, Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Psalm 18 verse, or Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are just. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Wayne Gruden's systematic theology explains God's justice in this way. As a result of God's justice or righteousness, it is necessary that he treat people according to what they deserve. Thus, it is necessary that God punish sin, for it does not deserve reward. It is wrong and deserves punishment. Nineveh was evil. God was just. He could not sit back on their wickedness and ignore it. He had to act. It was in his nature to act. He had no, op, no, there was no alternative but to act. Yet, he acted in mercy. In the same passage, we see that God sent the prophet to warn them. God's mercy lives in the same text as his justice Gruding again, helps me with the definition of mercy. He says, God's mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. God's grace means God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. And God's patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. Simply put, not getting what one deserves is Mercy. Their threshold for wickedness had piqued the interest of God, and he could have just wiped them off the face of the earth. Instead of doing so, he sent a prophet to let him know that they needed to turn from their wickedness. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 reads, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We find in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We have a God who is both perfectly just and yet perfectly merciful. And how do the two exist? His justice requires him to punish the wicked, We, friends, are wicked. But his mercy requires him to give us opportunity. This intersection of justice and grace, friends, is only found in Christianity. It is only found in the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11 read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Their inequities. Friends, the gospel is found in Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. We see a perfectly wicked nation. They were greatly wicked. They were a great nation. The exaggeration is clear. They were beyond their own ability to save themselves. Their wickedness was perfected, yet God's mercy still showed to them. According to Romans chapter 5, verses 18 18 through 21, we read, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have no business, friends, being entertained by God. We have sinned, we have rebelled. Our wickedness, whether you like it or not, has met the threshold of intolerance for God. There's nothing good that you've done that could ever amount up to the bad that you've done. And even if you had no bad that you've done, by nature of our fathers, or our father Adam and our mother Eve, friends, we are sinners. Yet Jesus, seeing our desperate need, came Provided an opportunity for us to be pardoned. Friends, who are you in this text? Are you Nineveh, the wicked nation, fully deserving of punishment? Or are you the messenger of God, going forth to proclaim deliverance and salvation? You have to be one of the other friends. There is no in-between. In this world and in this church, there are saved and unsaved. Those are the only two categories that matter to God. And our wickedness, friends, has piqued God's interest. And he has made allocation for us should we trust and believe in the Christ whom he sent. There's no need for you to wait until the end of the message, friends, for an invitation. If you know that you have fit into the criteria that Nineveh fit into. That your wickedness is beyond comprehension and you're stuck. Friends, please accept the Christ who has come to deliver you, to give you the mission of spreading this good news to the masses. As we continue reading in verse 3, we see that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to where? To Tarshish again. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to where? To Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. There's a grammatical structure called a chiasm here. There's three tiers. There's an outer tier which shows the focus of the text, and there's an inner tier which shows Jonah's focus. He was set on going to Tarshish. We've got a couple slides here that I'd like to share with you to give you a little bit of insight into exactly how far Jonah was willing to go away from God. In our first slide here, we see in the middle, Geth Heifer. This is where Jonah Was from. This is where he lived. To the top right, you see Nineveh, about 500 miles northeast. Joppa is due south. The next slide gives us a bit of a better understanding of exactly how far Jonah was intent on going. We see Gath Hefer in the middle there on the bottom. We see Nineveh in the top right corner, and then we see Tarshish all the way across the Mediterranean, some 2,000 miles away from Jonah's hometown. Tarshish wasn't some Hebrew family vacation destination. Friends, this place was far than, it was the farthest conceived place that Jonah could go. For us, that would be maybe like Mars or something, right? Like we could perhaps conceive going to Mars because there's a spaceship. Friends, this was out of the world for Jonah. And he sought to flee from the presence of God. This is the first sign that we have to see a little bit into Jonah's true heart. He zealously, defiantly disobeyed God and sought to get away from his presence as if that is ever possible in verse 3 we begin to see the directional downpour of Jonah and over the next several verses this will be magnified as we see that Jonah's life was spiraling out of control his goal was to get out of God's presence And in doing so, to remove the obligation from himself to be obedient. A few years back, maybe 10 years or so, there was a man named Edward Snowden. He had access to top-level government secrets. And he took this information and he placed it on the internet for all to see. Hundreds of felonies were issued and he was warned by the federal government to be prosecuted. And what did he do? He fled to Russia. You see, Russia was outside of the American jurisdiction. Geographically, it was outside of our nation's sovereignty. I think Jonah sought to flee in disobedience, thinking that he could get beyond God's reach, thinking that he could get beyond God's punishment even, that he can get beyond the presence of God. Friends, Jonah's theology was wrong. Jonah assumed that God was limited to a location or to a people. Jonah had misunderstood God. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, we read, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Joel, you are there. If I I take up wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jeremiah 23 verses 23 and 24 read, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? declares the Lord. Jonah assumed that God had limitations on not only his presence, but on his mercy. Jonah assumed that somehow he could get outside of God's presence. And Jonah also assumed that some people were unneeding of God's mercy. And so he fled. Jonah had conceived this God in his imagination that worked the way he wanted God to work. Jonah had conceived this God who was more like a genie in a bottle than the God of the Bible. Jonah worshipped a God that was so pro his people and his cause that it had to have been against everybody else and their cause. Jonah's theology sought to put God in a box. Friends, what is your God like? What is the God that you worship? Who is the God that you worship? Sometimes Pastor Brian and I and Pastor Ryan will get in the hallways here and we'll just have conversations. And one of the last conversations we talked about the difference between orthopraxy and orthodoxy. You see, orthodoxy is what we say we believe. For example, if I said, I believe that God is my provider, right? And then a recession hit. And then I got all nervous and started losing my mind and selling all my stuff and buying crypto or something crazy. Does that really support my orthodoxy? No. You see, my orthopraxy proves that I don't really trust God as my provider. Your orthodoxy is what you believe or say you believe, but your orthopraxy is what you do. Jonah's God, friends, was different from the God of the Bible Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Jonah couldn't conceive a God that would have mercy on such a wicked people. Therefore, he wouldn't. And therefore, he wasn't going to participate in that game in the game of mercy. Friends, we must submit that we too fail to fully carry out worship in its context of Scripture, to fully live out a life that reflects God as he's reflected in Scripture. Jonah had lost his way he failed to look in Scripture to inform him of who God was, not the world or not his life or even his relationships. Friends, let us be careful lest we do the same. We must look to Scripture first to inform us who God is, not our parents, not our culture Not our tradition, not our favorite authors, not the NFL, not whatever you want to believe, not politics, friends. It is scripture alone that talks to us of who God is because God wrote the word. And the word is his message to us, explaining to us who he is. If you've contrived any other idea of who God is that does not fit with the idea of God in the Bible, friends, you are close to Jonah. We must look to scripture to inform us of who God is. And then second, we must submit to that God. We must submit to the God of the Bible. Not to our circumstances or our relationships or our politics or whatever. We must submit to God, to the God of scripture. As we continue reading in verse 4 text picks up, but the Lord hurled a great, again, there's that word, great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty, again, great tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down ...into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This was a great storm, a big storm... It's important to understand how big and bad the storm was because we can begin to see how big and bad our God is. How much he loves and how much he seeks to save us. He literally threw a storm at the ship. And then the men, these seasoned sailors, cried out to their gods for help. A couple things to pick up in the text. These men were not your junior sailors. They were seasoned. If they were going to Tarshish all the way to the opposite end of the world, friends, they knew what they were doing. The old navy spent years at sea. Years. That's all they'd known. They were raised their entire lives at sea. We also see that these men cried out to each their own God which represents that they were made up of many nations, many different peoples, many different belief systems. And they cried out to their gods for help. We know that their gods were not real gods, but they cried out to them either way, anyway in desperation. And then they hurled their cargo into the ship. Notice again a play on the hurl or the word hurl. God hurled this great storm at them, and they hurled the cargo into the sea. They were desperate. They were without hope and doing everything they could to save their lives. And where did we find Jonah? Taking a nap. Sleep on duty. That's an Article 15 in my book. Jonah... Was going down, friends. It's important to understand the spiral effect of the text here, and to do so, I'm gonna step on stage. Hopefully, I don't fall doing this. But we see first. I like the lights up here better, Brian. First, Jonah goes down from Gethhepher. Now, Gethhepher was guess what the hill country. So he went down to Joppa. He went down to Joppa, and then what did he do? He got on the boat. He got down onto the boat. He paid a fare. From the boat, he went down into the hull of the ship, which is the innermost part of the ship, which, by the way, is also below sea level. And once he got into the hull of the the ship, what did he do? He laid down. And he laid down, and guess what he did? Went deeply asleep. He was in a coma, right? This idea of Jonah continuing to go down and down, it's not something that we should miss. There's this spiral effect. According to one commentator, every step that Jonah took away from God brought him one step closer to death. Friends, this text is beautiful. It's poetic. There's art behind it, but we must not miss the meaning that we too should we stand in rebellion against God, pose the risk of step by step by step going down. And some of us have lived this life away from God. We're almost like a boa constrictor is just tightening you tighter and tighter till you find yourself so far gone, so far lost, that you have no other Options, but to look up. Friends, Jonah is going to continue to go down, which we'll see in our next sermon, but we must pause just to appreciate the art behind the text. Jonah was going down, and as he's sleeping deeply, comatose, in the hull of this ship, below sea level, the men are up on the deck doing everything that they can to save the ship. Here comes the captain, who, by the way, is responsible for not only every person on the ship, but the cargo. And so the captain, who's responsible for every person on the ship, comes down to find Jonah, sleeping, sleeping. The captain says to Jonah, what are you doing? You sleeper, arise. The same word we see here, arise, is the same that we see God, the same command we see God give Jonah in, Jeff, uh, in, in Jonah's hometown. I lost my train of thought there for a second. It's arise. There's a rep- repetition of thought. There's a repetition of command, and it can't be lost on us. Jonah was given the same command by the captain that he was given by God. Get up. Call out to your God, and perhaps God will give thought to us that we may not perish. It's interesting here, we begin to see uh, similarity between the captain and God. As God calls out to Jonah, Jonah was asleep. Jonah wasn't seeking the captain. Yet the captain came And found Jonah. And he tells Jonah to get up, get on his feet, and continue his mission. Cry out to God. You see, these sailors represented many different nations. The captain was concerned about all of these sailors. Friends, we begin to get insight into God's care for the sailors, God's care for the nations. The nations are represented on this boat, and so is the gospel, and our desire, our opportunity, the necessity for us to cry out to people who do not know God. Let's pretend for a second that in 50 years or so after faithfully being a part of this community, ministering to the gospel, we start to lose our way and drift. And 50 years passes, and this place becomes... A bingo hall where people come and maybe vote and do things like that, but nothing of significance because they have no longer planted their authority on scripture, but they found consequence in other things. So imagine us, Nansman River, 50 years from now, we've lost our way, and the county comes up to us and says, hey, aren't y'all a church? Shouldn't you be proclaiming some type of hope to this community? I need you to get up because these folks are out here desperate. Friends, this is what we find Jonah doing. We find him lost his way. We found him sleeping on God. The Christ-centered exposition, which I've got a few out in the lobby for your resource, says, if ever we think the Lord simply glasses over rebellion to his word, we are mistaken. If we think it is a light matter to ignore the command of God in the Great Commission, to ignore the example of believers sharing the gospel throughout the book of Jonah, excuse me, throughout the book of Acts, we are fooling ourselves. Let God serve notice to all of us. He is prepared to break up this ship, drown Jonah, and let all of these idol-worshipping sailors perish, all in response to Jonah's rebellious actions. The Lord will make a storm to wreak havoc and wreck our plans. When we readily dismiss obedience to his command. From this thought, friends, we take two ideas. Not only was Jonah going in a downward spiral, but God chased him every step of the way. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, read, Therefore we must pay. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Friends, God seeks to save the lost. And if we are not carefully anchored on the word of God, we too will lose our relevance as a church. The star of this show isn't Jonah's rebellion from God. It's not the wickedness of Of the Assyrians. Friends, the star of this show is God's grace. The greatness of the wickedness, the greatness of the despair, the greatness of the rebellion is only to magnify the greatness of God's grace to us. The contrast is evident. Nineveh was wicked, God sent a messenger. That's grace. Jonah got into a ship to flee. God's in a storm. There's God's grace. Jonah went down in the ship, wanted to sleep. We see the captain come again, God's grace. We have the same command that Jonah did, friends, and we have it plastered on our wall to the right. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Friends, this is our challenge. Jonah was sent by God to proclaim salvation to those who were far from God. And he decided that they weren't good enough for God. Friends, we have the same challenge before us today. We must go out. In spite of the wickedness of those who are out there, in spite of whether or not they want to hear it, but because God came to us, we go. This book is a reflection of God's heart for humankind. And it's a firm warning to us today that if we harden our hearts, then we too will spiral downward. We ask that God would guard our hearts, keep us from idolatry, Help us to submit to the word of God, to who God really says he is in Scripture. Not culture, not tradition, not anything, but God's word. Rebellion from God leads to utter downfall, lest we surrender to God's saving grace. When Jonah went down to Joppa from Geth Heifer, he had to pay Toll to get on the boat. And as Jonah was boarding the boat, he had this ticket or this cost or whatever that required to be paid before he boarded the boat. And as we look at God's grace, we can't take for granted, friends, that we can pay for that ourselves. We can't take for granted that there's been a toll that has been paid to board the boat of God's grace. That this grace was not free. And we cannot pay for it. We could never pay for it. You see, Jesus came as the propitiation of our sins. He paid the price fully for us to board the boat to God's Grace, And if you are without God's grace, if you are seeking to get on board of God's grace, if you are separated from God due to your wickedness, friend, I must warn you, you cannot pay that toll. It is only Christ who has paid the toll. And you must simply, in your dock of life right now, accept, receive the free toll which has been paid. Friends, Christ sits at the door and he knocketh. And he waiteth for us to open the door. But friend, you must open the door and receive him. If you've never placed your trust in Christ, friend, I'm here to warn you, just as Jonah should have done to Nineveh and eventually does do. Turn away from your wickedness. Repent and surrender to God, the God of the Bible. And if you have made it across that port, and you are on the ship of God's grace, then you know the price that was paid, then your opportunity is to simply tell the world that they too will utterly and desperately suffer without intervention. And there is an intervention, and it is Jesus. Friends, that ship is here now, but it may not be here tomorrow. We may not be in this room next Sunday because that ship is heading into a one-way destination. It is a one-way trip that does not turn back. Our opportunity is to tell the world of Christ's salvation. But friend, if you think you can wait until tomorrow to get yourself together and board that ship, I have news for you. First off, you can't. Get yourself together. Second, it may not be here. People are celebrating holidays here soon, and we reflect on those who are not with us. Friends, let that be a witness to us that not one of our lives is guaranteed past the breath that we have now. So let us use it to glorify God. In a second, I'm going to pray, and I would ask that you consider the opportunity before you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you have never received his ticket of grace to board his ship of salvation, friend, please do so now. Please join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the intent and the detail behind it. I thank you for the, greatness of your mercy and the greatness of your justice. I thank you, Lord, that you still seek to save the lost. May we be a church, Father God, that goes out in a great way, sent by you to proclaim this good news. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. We accept Jesus as the toll. For our sin. We confess, Father God, we have fallen short so many times. And we thank you that you've sent your son to die for us. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't keep him in the tomb, but that he raised three days later and now he reigns in heaven. And we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us to go forth to proclaim this good news wherever you would see. In Jesus' name, amen.